We're going to kick off things with a prayer this morning. Uh, I'm going to give you two, two things to, to do during this prayer time. One is we are going to have a, a period of confession, uh, but this will be silent confession. You don't have to yell out your stuff out loud, right, Kelly? That would be a little embarrassing, yeah. Okay, so I will, I will open some space for you just to kind of confess uh, to God the things that you want to, and, um, and then also we'll have a period where you do call out prayer requests uh, just by name uh, that we can all lift that up, okay? So let's pray together. Almighty God, most high God, the one that we come to this morning and really language fails to put you in a box, uh, that you are so glorious and wonderful that words escape us. No matter what we say, it falls short of who you are. To you, we come this morning. We come here to try to glimpse you in this place, to feel your presence, to feel the peace that comes knowing that you, our Creator, are among us and know us and love us. We long to be refueled for the week ahead, to make that connection with you and with others. And so we come into this place to offer you our worship, our devotion, and asking for a touch from you in return. But God, as we come to this place, we realize there are some things that might get in the way of that happening. One is that we have failed in some ways this past week. We've made some mistakes. We've said some things we shouldn't have said. We've hurt people in ways that we feel ashamed about. We have done things and left other things undone. We have done things intentionally and unintentionally. And we don't want any of that to get in between us this morning. And so we're going to confess to you, each person in this room, silently in their heart this morning, just the things that they want to get off their chest. And we know that you welcome this process, that you welcome to hear our deepest, darkest things because you're the safest place to go when we find ourselves in that place. And so here, as we confess to you the things we want to get rid of. God, this process of confession can be a hard thing, especially if we have spent our lives running from you, avoiding you, fearful of your reaction to our sins. But the truth is, you know who we are through and through. You've always known it. And we believe you sent Jesus to live among us, to die for us, and to be raised again to new life all while we were sinners. 
And so if we trust in that, we can trust that you have forgiven us really before we even form the, the words to ask for it, that you have extended grace and love toward us. And really now we just need to receive that forgiveness from you. And so we thank you for that. God, we also know that we come into this place burdened by all kinds of things. I mean, I, 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 just this morning, I open my news feed and I see how the wildfires in, in Maui uh, just continue to take land and take lives and destroy uh, everything in its path. I, I read about this hurricane that's hitting California that is so rare for them um, they're not prepared for it. They don't know what to do. I read about tragedies all over the world, things that, that just are not the way that you want them to be. Here at home, we, we have folks like Stacy who we're concerned about as he makes this transition from a, a, a facility that can care for him into his own home. And we wonder, is he ready for that? And will we be able to take care of him? Will Cece be able to care for him in the way that he needs? And every person in this room has something like that that's weighing them down this morning and hindering us from glimpsing your glory and from being filled with the peace that you have for us. And so we're going to call out to you right now names of people, situations, concerns that we have, we lift this as an offering to you and taking the yoke of Jesus upon us instead, a yoke that is light and easy. So we ask now, Lord, that you hear our prayer. Lynn Gibson. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Christine Holcomb. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Alice Duffy. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 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 John Hafner. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 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 Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Gracie Mayus Walk, 102 and 103. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Grace for Andrew Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. God, I'm sure even now there are some things on our hearts that we don't know how to begin to articulate because the weight of it is crushing. We give you those as well. Take them from us, lighten our load today, free us for joyful obedience, free us for worship in spirit and in truth. 
And we ask all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Listen now for a word from the Lord. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. A word from God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So so if you're visiting us today, I I will let you know that my last appointment was pretty much, it was was pretty, pretty high church, high worship. And so I wore the collar and the full robes and all that every Sunday. And my first Sunday here, you know, we're on a golf course here. Uh, We've got, this used to be a restaurant, and we've got a bar in the back that's been converted to a coffee bar, but at one time was an actual bar. And it's, it's just a different atmosphere. But I came dressed up in all of the stuff. My very first Sunday, I walked in, and everybody, they're like, what is going on? Who is this guy? What is happening here? And then, and then as I was preaching, I began, like, one by one, I took the stole off, and then I'm preaching some more, and then I take the collar out, and I'm preaching some more, and then I take the robe off, and people are like, oh, now what's he doing? How far is he going to go? Anyway, this is how we dress here, right? There you go. But you can dress however you want to dress. I don't care. Uh, I don't think that's super important uh, to God and to the work of the church. But um, Let's pray before I dig into this. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So, for those of you who were here last week, uh, we preached uh, on the the sermon, the text about uh, Jesus walking to the disciples on the water in the middle of the night, and they were freaked out and thought it was a ghost, and then Peter was like, hey, if it really is you, let me get out of the boat and walk towards you. Why he he thought that was a good idea, I don't know, but he did, and and he managed to walk for a little bit before, you know, he started sinking, and so we, we asked the question last week, what happens when you seek the face of God and what you get is actually frightening and terrifying? That was our takeaway from that text. When Jesus comes to you because you want to get to know Jesus and what you experience is, is 
is uh, not what you expected? And how do you deal with that? And do you think about that as you seek the face of God? Do you anticipate that maybe what you're going to get in response to this um, might actually be a little bit scary? This week, I want to ask the question, what happens when you seek the face of God and what you get is silence, refusal, or flat-out rejection from God? Anybody ever prayed a prayer and got no answer? Gosh, that's a tough place to be, right? And yet this Canaanite woman who's seeking the face of God in Jesus of Nazareth, this is exactly what she gets. Now this woman, no doubt about it, she was bold, she was persistent, she refused to take no for an answer, and I think that there is a great lesson in this. That lesson would be something to the effect of God invites our reasoning and our debate and God invites a little pushback. That because we are made in the image of God, that comes with some amount of privilege. That privilege being that you are in relationship with God and that you have the ability and really the right to question God on some stuff and you won't be smited for that, right? That, that's part of what it means to be an image bearer, I think is the lesson there. And I think that's a lot to unpack. I could preach a whole sermon on that. Maybe we'll do that another day. What I want to focus on today is how to make ethical decisions, learning how to make ethical decisions based on the example of Jesus in this story. Ethics, one of my favorite subjects. Man, in seminary, I was very intrigued by ethics, which is really just the study of how do you know what's right and what's wrong? How do you choose the right from the wrong? That, that's ethics. And so I took extra classes. I, I ended up winning an award. Look at this. dun dun, dun. This says, uh, this uh, B'nai B'rith Award presented by the Harold M. Coffin Foundation of the Dallas Jewish Community Foundation to James Calvert, that's me, for scholarly competence and personal commitment to social ethics, Perkins School of Theology, uh, May 18, 2019. They gave me an award as though uh, I had done something special. Let me tell you something, folks. I took a lot of ethics classes. I am still no closer to answering that question, how do you choose the right from the wrong? How do you know? This is a big question. And we can see it just, just, just in our country right now. You can see we have some pretty hot debates going on on various ethical issues because we can't agree on how to choose what's right and what's wrong. But I do know that there are three main theories of how one would do this. Now, this is grossly oversimplified, but, but here's what you need to know. The first theory is that uh, we, call, we call it duty-based ethics, that the right thing to do is to do what you're obligated to do, to follow the rules. You follow the rules, you're always doing the right thing, okay? So let's say, for instance, the speed limit 
is 30 miles an hour. What is the right thing to do? It's to drive the speed limit or less. That is the rule. Follow the rule and you're in the right. That's the right choice. But the second theory is called consequentialist, uh, consequence-based ethics, consequentialists. Um, that theory says the right thing to do is to do what produces the best outcome for the most people. Okay? So the speed limit is 30, but your wife is sitting in the seat next to you minutes away from giving birth. Forget the rule. The best thing to do is get to hospital as fast as you can to produce the best outcome. That is the right thing to do. So you look at the consequences, not the rule. You look at the, the, the outcome to determine how you should proceed. Now the third one, and this is my favorite, is called virtue ethics. This says you do whatever lines up with whatever kind of person you want to be known as. So you ask the question, how do I want to be known? What do I want people to say at my funeral? And then you live that out as best you can, and that is the right thing to do. So, so if you're driving along at 30 miles an hour or the speed limit's 30, you don't ask what is the rule or what produces the best outcome. You say, what kind of driver do I want to be known as? Do I want to be known as a road rager? No. Do I want to be known as someone who puts other lives in jeopardy? No. I want to be known as a, a safe driver, a conscientious driver, a patient driver. Really, the speed limit and all that is, it, it doesn't, it, it might factor in, but it may not. It's more about what kind of driver do I want to be known as. This is over, overly simplified, folks, way overly simplified, okay? But these are the three main theories today. And we use all of these at any given time. Um, I'm going to follow the speed limit most of the time, especially if I know that there's a, a police officer around the corner, right? I'm really going to follow the rule because I know that there are, uh, there's a price to pay if I get caught breaking that rule. So the right thing to do for me in this moment and for my checkbook is to follow the law. But there are times that I break that speed limit, sometimes because there are other things going on, uh, sometimes because I just forget about the speed limit and I end up going faster than I want. But really, virtue ethics, if I asked that question, really made that my life's goal. What kind of driver do I want to be known as? That would probably produce a pretty good driving habit, a driving record. We use all of these at any given time. And, and I want to propose to you today that Jesus was no different. That Jesus was no different in how he chose to do the right thing. How he avoided doing the wrong things. Now this may sound shocking to you. As we talked about in our Monday morning uh, uh, study group, we have this theological idea that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And so we, we look at the, the fully God part and say, Jesus would never have to choose the right from the wrong because God would never choose the wrong, right? It's just already built into him. Or the fact that he wouldn't even have to make a choice seems a little weird to us. 
But as I read through the Gospel of Matthew, something became clear to me, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, and this may sound shocking to you. The way that Mark tells the story is a little bit different, but in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has come to save the Jews only. Is that shocking? Some of you are going... In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has come to save the Jews only. In fact, Matthew paints him as the new Moses who will lead the Israelites into a new era. Just as Moses delivered them from Egypt into this new place and this new land, Jesus is leading the children of Israel into a new era, a new relationship with God. Jesus reinterprets the law given by Moses through the lens of love and begins to teach the Israelites, this is what the law means. Love God, love neighbor, right? He also mediates a new covenant. We talk about this in, in our liturgy when we, when we take communion. The new covenant given by Jesus that is brought through His uh, sacrifice on the cross. And so He's like a new Moses, leading the children. In fact, he calls them the lost sheep of Israel. Now, let me give you just some examples to, to prove this theory. Uh, if you go and read through Matthew, he only preaches in the synagogues. Those are Jewish worship centers. He goes to the synagogue and preaches about the coming kingdom of heaven to get your hearts right because the kingdom is coming. A new era is coming preaching to the Jews. In chapter 9, he commissions the disciples to go out and to begin doing what he has been modeling for them. I want you to go out and I want you to heal the sick and preach the good news. And he tells them specifically, do not go to the Gentiles. Do not go to the Samaritans. Only go to the Jews. His entire mission, his entire focus is on the lost sheep of Israel for whom he sees himself as their shepherd, the one that will guide them like Moses. In fact, it's only after Herod kills John the Baptist and then word spreads that Herod begins asking about this guy named Jesus, this Jesus guy that's stirring up some things. Tell me more about him. It's only after this that Jesus decides it's gotten pretty heated here in Judea. I think I need to get out of town a little bit. And he goes up north and leaves Jewish territory and enters into Gentile lands. Up, we are told, to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And this happens in chapter 15. Up until chapter 15, Jesus is only in Jewish territory, only preaching in synagogues, only healing and interacting with Jewish people, except for one Roman centurion. Jesus is only interested in the Jews. And then we get to chapter 15, and Jesus finds himself in Gentile territory, and this tenacious, unnamed Canaanite woman comes to ask Jesus for help. Now, this lady is unnamed in the gospel. We don't have her name. History has given her the name Justa, which means justice, doing the right thing, right? And so here she comes out 
yelling, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. A lot of Jewish people have have said this same thing throughout the gospel, but here is this Canaanite woman yelling, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I can see, if I close my eyes, I can see the struggle on the face of Jesus as she pleads for him to heal her daughter. And at first he tries to ignore her. This is a hard text, folks. At first he just tries to ignore her. Maybe if I just just act like she's not there, maybe she'll go away. I mean, he's thinking at this point, I only came up here to get out of the, the heat of Herod, just until things cool off a little bit. I'm not, I'm not up here to do any work. I'm just kind of hanging out until I can go back, right? But she keeps on pleading. She keeps on pleading. And I can imagine this scene on, on one side is this poor woman who's pleading, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter needs help. She's sick. She needs your help. On the other side, you've got the 12 disciples. They're going, Jesus, this woman's driving us nuts. Get rid of her. Make her go away, Jesus. And Jesus is caught in the middle of this. And, and I can hear the struggle in his voice. I don't know if he's speaking to himself, if he's speaking to God, if he's responding to the disciples, make this woman go away. But he says, I can't get involved in this. I was only sent to find the lost sheep of Israel. I was only sent to the Jews. I can't get involved in this. And then this woman, bold, 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 she comes right in front of Jesus and kneels before him and forces him to look at her in the eyes. Help me, Jesus. Help me. And Jesus gives one final attempt to try to avoid this whole situation. He says, it's not fair to give to you what belongs to someone else. Actually, what he says is, it's not fair to give what belongs to the children to the dogs. And you wrestle with this text. Because this is not the Jesus we know. This is not the Jesus we love. To say this to this woman... It's not fair to give what belongs to the children to the dogs. Do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Apparently Canaanites are dogs. And this woman, she says, Jesus, is it fair to withhold grace from somebody who needs it? Is that fair? All I want is a crumb. Just give me a crumb. And Jesus cracks. Jesus cracks. And I think this is a moment in which the way that Jesus does ethics switches. That he moves from one way to another way. He moves from following the rules, the obligations, what I was sent to do, my mission, my marching orders, and he gives himself over to compassion and empathy. What kind of savior do I want to be? What kind of savior do I want to be? And I think that we should all thank this Canaanite woman for opening the way for us.
Because after this scene, Jesus does not leave Canaanite territory. He stays. And Matthew tells us that they begin bringing people, people who need healing, people who are sick, people who need a touch, people who need a blessing. And Jesus heals every single one of them. And Matthew tells us that these Gentiles begin to thank the God of Israel because hope has been brought to us too. Not only that, we have a story before this, back down in Judea where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. You know that story? 5,000 men plus the women and children with just five loaves of bread and two fishes. Famous story. Guess what he does up in the northern Gentile parts? These crowds that have been coming to him. For three days he's healing them, he's touching them, he's praying for them, embracing them, fully giving himself over to the kind of Savior that he wants to be beyond the scope of his mission. And he turns to the disciples and says, I have compassion for these crowds. We need to feed them. And Matthew says, 4,000 Gentiles, men plus women and children, are fed in the same way that the Jews were fed just a few weeks before. Just a few loaves of bread, a few fishes. The miracle now has been extended to the Gentiles. What do we learn from this dramatic shift in Jesus' ministry? What do we learn from this? What I take from this story is that having values and sticking to the rules is a really good thing until it's not anymore. You know, Jesus had done this before. Remember that time he was picking grain on the Sabbath or when he would heal somebody on the Sabbath and the Pharisees would get all upset and say, you know the rules, Jesus. The rule says you don't do any work on Sunday. You save that for the next day. Not on Sunday, on Saturday. Sabbath would have been Saturday for them. You wait until Sunday to do that. Saturday is a no-no. And Jesus says, you know, I'm not only Lord of the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for us. We weren't created for the Sabbath. In other words, the rule is not created for us to follow. It's there for our benefit to make sure we take a rest. But if somebody's hungry, I'm going to feed them. If somebody's sick, I'm going to heal them. I don't care if it's the Sabbath. He's doing that now in Gentile territory. Same thing here. Jesus shows us that showing compassion and meeting the needs of people, even the wrong people, is more blessed than keeping the rules just for the rule's sake. And I think, you know, if Jesus can listen to this woman with an open heart and mind, if he doesn't send her away, but here's her argument, and she has a really good argument, that, hey, I may be a dog, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall. Jesus is like, great is your faith. Great is your faith, woman. If Jesus can listen to this woman, and if he can make his circle of love even bigger because of this interaction, can't we? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? 
What kind of people do we want to be? What do we want people to say about us at our funerals? I think it would be great if Jesus said about me, and I know you probably feel this way too, that boy, he tried to live his life like Jesus. He tried to follow Jesus as best he could. She lived a life like Jesus. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing to have said at your funeral? And so then we look at Jesus. We begin to make a list. What was Jesus like? Well, in this story, we see that, that Jesus was flexible, that Jesus was open to new ideas, to new conversations, to new ways of doing things. But we also see that Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is self-sacrificial. <laughs> I mean, the cross, folks. We see that Jesus is forgiving peaceable, merciful, honest, patient, kind. We see that Jesus displays a confident humility and Jesus shows sympathy and empathy to whomever He can. We also see that Jesus is willing to ruffle a few feathers in order to be this way, which ultimately led to His death. And so now we've made this list, and we say, is this the kind of person I want to be? Do I want to try to embody this list as best I can, even if it ruffles a few feathers down the road, even if it gets me in hot water with some other people? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. You know, we're moving from Summer into the fall, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it, Lord. But we are moving from the summer into the fall, and what that means in the lectionary is that we're moving from what's called ordinary time, which is green, focuses on the growth of the disciples of Jesus, us. This whole thing, we're focusing on how do we grow and become more like Jesus. But very soon, that's going to give way to a new cycle, and we'll start with the birth of Jesus again. And then we'll talk about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, this cycle that comes over and over and over. But we're running out of ordinary time. We're running out of this, this time that we can focus on what it means to live like Jesus. And I think we need to make this our priority. That in a world that's so divided on how to do right from wrong, we actually choose the right thing for us is to live like Jesus. To emulate Jesus as best we can with the help of God. That's the right thing for us. And so we begin to display flexibility and open-mindedness and compassion and forgiveness, and mercy, all these things. Knowing full well that it's going to ruffle some feathers, that it's going to get us in hot water from time to time, maybe even in danger, who knows. But at the end of the day, 
we feel good about our choices. Because if we say that we are disciples of Jesus, that we trust in the way of Christ, that somehow that leads to life, abundant life, then we're going to pursue that path. Because folks, Jesus may not have done the fair thing in extending grace to this woman or to us. That may not have been the fair thing. I don't know. But it was the compassionate and loving thing. And for this, we are eternally grateful. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for listening to this woman. Thank you for having compassion on her. Thank you for then turning to the disciple, to the, to the Gentiles in large number and showing them the same grace. Thank you for extending salvation to all the world. Help us to exhibit that same light and life in the world. In a world that argues all day long about what's right and what's wrong and how to do things and imposing beliefs on each other, help us just to live like you, to be different, to choose a different path. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, will you grab the hand of the person next to you? Let's form a big family chain through this place. Folks, I'm going to leave you with a blessing. Don't forget to grow in grace. Grow in grace. Give generously. Receive others warmly. Attend church every week. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Uh, C was, oh, make connections in small groups. Come to Jocelyn's tomorrow. And then E, evangelize. Invite somebody to church. Extend an invitation. Okay? Will you receive this blessing? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May you know that you're perfectly loved, you're completely forgiven, and you're uniquely empowered. Now you're called to go out into the world and live as God's faithful children. Guess what, folks? You're going to make some mistakes this week because we all do. We're human. But even when we make those mistakes, it does not change how God feels about us. We can't decrease God's love for us. We can't increase God's love for us because the Bible tells us God is love, pure, perfect love. So that when he looks at us by his amazing grace, he says, y'all are nothing but the best of the best of the best. And if you can walk out of this place today believing that, it will change everything. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please go from this place and take that good word with you in peace. Amen.